Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ed Krasnick, along with me, my partner, Jennifer Kalari, coming up shortly. She's a therapist. I'm a mess. What could possibly go right? Here we are. We put the funk in dysfunction. It's the show that the American Medical Association is saying, look out. If you see only one neurotic this year, make it me. We have a big show. This is the show where we not only talk about mental health, but we practice skills because mental health is a practice. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. I'm learning about it every day. But apparently, what you think and what you feel has a bearing on how you live. (laughs) I've heard about it, but this is the first time I've really approached it in in a professional way. I've seen a lot of professionals. In fact, if psychotherapy could be converted to frequent flyer miles, I'd be eligible for a free trip to Pluto. All right. So here we are. We have a big show because our guest, I'm a fan, I'm a big fan, and I've been a fan all the way back to Glee, where uh, she was Brittany S. Pierce on the show Glee. She's been everywhere, movies, TV, Dancing with the Stars, many different shows. And now she is producing a really interesting podcast called The Bystanders with a cast that's insane. You know, it's Kristen Chenoweth and Jane Lynch and Michael Hitchcock, for starters. It's just an incredible uh, cast, and it's very entertaining. And you can hear it on the Believe Podcast Network, B-L-E-A-V.com. And that is our new network as well. Uh, We are also on Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com. So you can find us there, and you can find the bystanders there. You can find the bystanders wherever you get your podcasts, of course. And that is Heather Morris. Heather Morris joining us shortly. There's a lot that I want to talk about in today's show. One of the things is I wanted to talk about this idea of bullying, and there is something in show business before the Me Too movement, which has changed things. If you were on a show it's a privilege to be working in show business so people can treat you like crap if they want. And that's fine. It's fine. Abuse is fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) Up until the Me Too movement. We're going to talk a little bit about that, about how you deal with, you know, abusive people. So that's something that we all encounter from time to time. Of course, you want to be on your own side. So that affects how you deal with other people, what you tell yourself and what you're willing to allow and the choices that you make and how you deal with that. But we're going to talk to Jennifer about strategies to deal with that. And we'll talk with Heather too about it. Now, we always welcome people based on whatever emotional state they're in with emotional shout outs. So right now, here are emotional shout outs. If you've taken up ventriloquism and your dummy is still wearing a mask, welcome. If your new way of dealing with fear of conflict is wearing a no conflict zone, t-shirt. Welcome. If you're going camping now and vow never to call your spouse honey in front of a bear, welcome. If you're so uncomfortable with sadness that you've learned how to smile downward, welcome. If you call your therapist ma'am, welcome. If you were pulled over for a DWI driving while insecure, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. Now, we always have a sponsor, a comedy sponsor. Today's show, maybe not so comedic, but today's show is brought to you by New Body Talk. 
Body Talk are wearable, edible, positive body image messages that you wear on your body. It's food-based, and the colors allow you to draw your positive statements in bright colors, lemon, raspberry, blueberry, etc. You can go with statements like, I'm enough, I'm okay, get off my ass, my abs don't define me, kiss my ass. Whatever you want to do, you write it on your body. And however you feel about your body may think differently about it with Body Talk. Now available in new Strawberry Selexa, Watermelon Wellbutrin, and Zabaglione Zoloft. That's Body Talk. Okay. I want to welcome in our... We, we do have a licensed therapist, thank God. Um, she has a great organization called ConnectedParenting.com, ConnectedParenting.com, where she teaches all kinds of resilient skills, brain hacks, books, media, podcasts, all kinds of classes that you can take, which help parents and families, self-parenting, people to live happier and healthier. She is the queen of oxytocin. She is the sultan of serotonin. She is the diva of dopamine. She is the high priestess of the hippocampus. Uh, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. And, and you've got a lot of titles now. Uh, they get bigger every week. I love it. Thank well, it's gonna, Yeah, it's going to keep going. And, you know, I want to talk to you today about, about bullying. Sure. I want to talk to you about dealing with reactive people. Mm-hmm. And, and we're also going to talk to our guest, Heather, about being a bystander in life. When mm -hmm. you see somebody who needs help and it looks like a conflict experience, whether they're being hurt in some way or they need some help, what is it that you do and, and why? And, and why are people so scared of getting involved? I think we know some of the reasons for that. Mm -hmm. But how do you deal with it in the world? So this is sure. a lot of stuff to talk about. So, so bullying. Mm -hmm. What techniques do you use or how do you educate people about this? Well, it's interesting. You really have to know what bullying is, right? Because there's social aggression and then there's bullying. So bullying is when it, someone is targeted. It really is to demean them, to hum dehumanize them. And it's on a, on a fairly, like there's a theme, there's a pattern to it. And bullies are really, it's all about power, right? Bullies are afraid, honestly. And they want to take other people's power in order to feel like they have their own and when you are victimized by a bully, it's whether it, it's learning to hold on to your power instead of giving them, you know, giving that power away. So, and when I work with kids, I kind of teach them. It, it's interesting in the curriculum in a lot of schools, kids are taught to, you know, stand up to the bully by saying things like, "That really hurts my feelings when you do that," or "You've made me sad." If you want to um, make a bully more of a bully, say that to them, right? Because it really is about power. And I teach kids to actually act either bored or are not um, influenced or upset by what the bully says. So if a, a kid says something really nasty to them, they're like, eh, whatever. So it's this kind of casual response, which really disarms the bully. So it, it's important to understand the what's at the center of it. I'll give you a really quick example, because this is the way to handle a bully. And it's not easy. And it's, it really is often about power. And certainly it, show business is not the only area where that becomes a problem. Anytime there's a power imbalance, boss, you know, uh, people working underneath them, anytime there's that power imbalance, you're, you, this can happen. But I remember working at an agency, this is a long, long time ago. And I think I've told this story before, but it's so related because this is where I came up with the idea of the stand up for yourself statement, which is really, really powerful. And it's the best way to diffuse and disarm a bully. So 
So I was working at this place and this other woman was, you know, working uh, in the same agency as I was. And she'd had a lot more experience. She was doing a fantastic job and I was kind of floundering and panicking and, and I was not having a good time. And we were back in our student office and, and this is not an exact description of bullying, but it, it's, it, it, I, in this case, was the aggressor. So we're in the student office and I had watched her do this amazing interview and I'd heard everyone talk about how fantastic she was and she's so good and I just got all bitter and jealous and afraid and all of these things started coming up in in in, in you know in my experience and when I saw this girl in our office I said to her I I can't remember exactly what I said but it was something like disguised as a constructive criticism but it was really meant to make her feel bad honestly if I'm really honest about it and I was not like that I'm not normally like that but I was so triggered that that's what came out of my mouth. And I will never forget this girl's response. It was absolutely stunning. She looked at me with this face, which was kind of like, oh, you poor thing getting threatened and having a hard time. Like genuinely though, not 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 in a, a mean way. And then she said, you know, I don't need you to like or dislike my work. And I just kind of felt, wow. First of all, it, it totally exposed everything that was going on. It was the coolest response. And I remember holding on to that. And I teach that to the kids that I work with. So if someone is not nice to them, they just say, well, whatever, I like it or I don't care in this really non-defensive, strong centered way. And it leaves the bully with nothing to say or nothing to do. Right? And that's really at the, the basis of this. It's holding on to your own power and not handing it away to someone else. That's a very, uh, it's very powerful what that person said and the way that they said it. But they really had to match that sentiment, though. They weren't pretending that they needed your approval and, and didn't, and weren't. No, she they, really It's didn't. not a pretending thing. You don't pretend. No, she was a hundred percent confident and it kind of just exposed me. And as I teach kids to use this um, in my workshops, when I go to different schools, it really works. I had a little kid, I don't know how old she was in grade three or third grade. And she had little light up shoes and the kid who was kind of bullying her in the class said, those are shoes for babies. And, and followed her around the entire recess saying that her shoes were for babies. And she just turned around and said, well, first of all, I like them. And second of all, if I'm a loser and a baby for wearing these shoes and you're following me, what's really going on here? <laughs> she said something to that effect. And the bully just didn't know what to do and just kind of walked away. It's quite a powerful technique. It's not defensive. It's not coming from a place of fear. It's just holding your own space. Now, this is very difficult to do, especially when you get into more powerful positions. And we'll examine how this can be applied in different situations, but it's not letting your power go. And it's giving the, the, the aggressor a completely different response from the one that they are intending or imagining. Yeah, well, it triggers fear. And then you start thinking about the worst. And then your body and your mind and your speech all lines up with fear. But mm -hmm. if you have tools and mantras and things that you can actually use and you can sort of practice that when you're not being attacked, somehow yeah. that yeah. would be a way to do it. And the other thing I think, and we're gonna bring on Heather in just a minute here, but the other thing is teaching people how to stand up. Mm -hmm. What do you do when you hear a racist comment? What do you do when you hear somebody else being bullied? What yeah. do you do when you witness, you know, someone being attacked verbally or yeah. physically, what yeah. is it that you do and how do you calm the fight or flight response so that yeah. you can act appropriately, right? Yeah. And listen, there's many of us who fear conflict. We're afraid that to make things worse. We're afraid we're going to get hurt ourselves. We're afraid we're going to make it worse for that person. But the truth is all of us know exactly what to do in these situations. Your heart knows, your soul knows. 
you know how to be a good human. You know what's needed at that moment. And that needs to be accessed instead of just the fear. We talk about all the time being lined up in what's called brain-heart coherence, right? When your head and your heart are in agreement and they're in full alignment. Um, So first accessing that moment of your humanity where you know you have to say something and you don't come in yelling and screaming. I mean, it depends what the situation is. You sort of come in in this position of, of defending that other person and doing what's right in a loving, strong, courageous way. And it is not easy to do. And this is why it's so important to teach our kids to do this, how to do it. And Ed, you said something a few minutes ago that's so important, memorizing and practicing and scripting some really good things to say can really help because in a moment of confrontation, when something is happening like that, first of all, it's shocking. It's alarming. You then, your frontal lobe literally shuts off. The part of your brain that can plan out what you're saying, that knows why it's saying something, that wants to do the right thing is literally offline. And you are now reacting from a limbic place of fight or flight, right? Just safety and security. The brain doesn't know it's somebody being racist or insulting someone. It thinks there's a a tiger that's about to attack you. And all of your rational thinking uh, is offline. So having some of those things memorized first so that you don't have to think about it, they're there, they're somewhere rehearsed and your brain has access to it in those moments can really, really help. And that's what I tell parents to do with kids too. Have a few things ready to say that feel right and practice it. And you can actually role play it with other people. So you can actually sort of create that situation and be ready and have those tools available when you need them. Well, I know that my brain and heart coherence, I know that my brain and my heart are seeing other people. (laughs) So I don't know if that's so good, but that's, you know, just getting them in alignment. But the practice is the thing. Always. And we talk about it, you know, rehearsing for life. You're, You're rehearsing these situations and it's perfectly natural to rehearse them. And this, our guest is gonna be able to speak to rehearsal too, because she's been through a million hours of rehearsal and she is a, she's a wonderful dancer, great actress, and now also a producer who has a wonderful, a great new podcast called uh, The Bystanders. And it can be heard on the Believe Podcast Network, B-L-E-A-V.com. And that's Heather Morris. And Heather, how many hours would you say of rehearsal have you had in your life? As my child would say, to infinity. <laughs> yeah. There is infinite numbers of hours. And beyond. And, and beyond. beyond. You're, you're a Buzz yes, Lightyear. Yes, I am Toy Story you, here. Here's the thing that I'm going to ask you right away. I've always wondered this. When you're a dancer, how do you deal with mental health? How do you deal with insecurity? How do you deal with fear? How do you deal with your emotions and your thoughts? Is dancing a way, is physical movement a way that you actually get into dealing with your mental health? I think so. I think, uh, as Jennifer would probably attest to this, there's certain methods to like shaking your body and stimulating mm-hmm. like certain nerves that get um, like aggression and stuff like that out. I really find though that dancers are the most confident humans in the whole world. So maybe it is. Maybe I remember dealing with a lot of high stress situations and people treating us dancers not so great um, because dancers are treated, I will tell you confidently, less than stand-ins or less than background artists. It's it's absolutely astounding. We're treated like garbage. And and yeah, people are just are just awful 
And like, I just remember walking away from certain situations and being able to like brush it off my shoulders and not think twice about it and almost laughing at these people. Like, what do you go home and do with your life? Like, who do you, who do you <laughs> yeah. come to be and how happy are you with what you're doing yeah. to these poor people right now? Right. Well, yeah. and that's the key. Happy people, honestly, happy, healthy people don't bully. It's that simple. Yeah. They just don't, they don't need to. So what's awesome about being a dancer and just owning that stage and you're, you're, all of your emotions are coming out through your body. And, and when dancers are in that zone, they're in brain heart coherence, really. Wow. I and then that. you just like, it is. And they just strut on that stage and, and you just kind of dominate that situation. And that's the way to own it. That's beautiful. We need to make a shirt that says head heart coherence. Brain yeah. heart coherence. <laughs> for dancers. For dancers, for everybody. You've danced in so many different kinds of venues from from being a backup dancer with Beyonce, for God's sakes, to dancing with the stars competitively in, in those kinds of shows, and then dancing on Glee, of course. Is it is it a different approach to, to whatever the situation is, or is there a preparation that you do, you know, in your own mind that, that sort of gets you ready? Can you face anything? I'm sure you have your own your own toolkit, but those experiences how are they different and how do you how do you get ready for something like that? I think it's honestly like I've been dancing since I was one. So for the longest time it was muscle memory. I mean, I didn't I didn't even mm -hmm. have to think twice. It would just come out of my body. Um which is a weird thing to say, but no, it, no, I wouldn't even all. think twice about it. And then I would just be doing all the moves. And I actually recently about a year and a half ago before COVID, I danced with Shania Twain. Uh, one of my good friends who's a choreographer was like, Hey, will you come dance with us? I was like, I would love to absolutely dance with Shania Twain. And I remember, well, we, first of all, we were dancing on like 15 step stairs on the on yeah on the stage and so I was terrified that I was just gonna yeah. like front roll down these stairs so I had that going and then I was like y'all y'all I haven't danced like per for a live stage in years I'm now like a 33 year old mom who doesn't do this anymore I'm like I'm gonna forget every step I I, I never had that ever I I never remember feeling that way the curtains come up, the lights show on our faces, and I felt like I was in my body more than I ever had. And I didn't even think yeah. twice about what I was doing. And I think it's just, it's like the conditioning that I'm used to. I like walked off stage and I was like, wow, I can't believe I remembered every step. Uh, I was astounded that I didn't forget any of it. I was, re I really believed I was going to. But that's a true dancer, right? That when you're doing what your body loves, what your brain loves, and what your heart loves, it doesn't even, you lose a sense of time. You don't really have any idea. Exactly. You, you sort of almost, it's amazing. That, that is actually brain. And that all artists, so any of us can go into that zone when we're, when our heart and our brain are lined up and we're doing something we love that is also lined up with making other people happy and giving them joy. Hmm. You can't not feel like that. So that's amazing. So does that translate over to parenting? Because you have two little ones now. You're a mom. Do I just blank out and it's just... It's perfect. And then and just alignment. remember I'm a parent. Yeah, that's what I was going to wonder. <laughs> Everything's so much. Oh wait! Oh wait! I am a mom. Wait, wait a minute. Wait, where am I? I have kids now. Oh, so Hang good. on. I'm doing so good. I'm perfect, and everybody's yeah. watching me. It's very opposite than that. It's very opposite. It's always a learning, always a learning curve. And I I follow some really great people who are parent strategists, and I I owe a lot of my tools to them because without those people, I have no clue what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, kids don't come with manuals. They don't. No. 
it's the hardest job you'll ever do. I don't care what you do. Parenting is really hard. I tumble down those 15 step stairs every single day of my life is what happens. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. and then I get back up and then I go back up on the top and then I do it again. <laughs> when you have little kids, yeah. what are some skills that you need and just basic skills that will help you, you know, in the moment? Well, and it's not even just little kids. It's you know, kids of all ages. I mean, the primary strategy that that I teach parents is, in, and it comes back again to brain heart coherence. It's sort of being in that when your head and your heart agree. And we normally, we either, we often parent from a place of fear with our kids and kids are so smart and they're so intuitive. They don't, they can hear what you're saying, but they know what you're feeling underneath what you're saying. And they're masters. Like they can just work a room. They really can. And, when, and, and to sort of learn how to be to respond to our kids instead of react to our kids, which is really hard. And then the primary technique I teach, of course, is how to use language and words and compassion and empathy literally as medicine that release oxytocin, serotonin, beautiful reward chemicals in the body that actually calm your kids down and take them out of fight or flight, an adrenaline-based fight or flight response into an oxytocin-based, um, which is a more love-based, open-based uh, conversation. And it takes practice. It's it's not easy. It's really not. And and I, you know, it's interesting, Brittany, because because we're not actually parents. We're actually substitute frontal lobes, right? So, <laughs> little kids don't have fully formed frontal lobes yet. The part of the brain that knows when to go to bed and how much they should eat and whether they should hit somebody if they're mad. And that's 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 the job of the frontal lobe. And it takes twenty five years to grow one of those, right? So we provide all those functions, inhibiting, organizing, motivating, taking perspective, which is all you do all day long with your kids. Mm -hmm. Get them in the bath, get them out of the bath, get them in the car, get them out of the car. You know, all of those transitions, we have to provide that brain, that brain function for them because they don't have a fully formed frontal lobe yet. They're not mini adults. But their job is to push back. No, you're mean in a minute, not now. And you're like pushing this boulder uphill all day long. And it's not easy. It's really, really not easy. And to stay in a place of love, not fear and neutrality. And you know what? You're, you make all kinds of mistakes as a parent. So you go back in your repair every day after you fall down those flight of stairs. <laughs> you get back up and you're like, okay, let's, uh, let's try that again. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's really hard. It really, really is. As somebody who's given me great advice is like, my child is so bored and I can sense he's super bored. And, you know, instead of him asking, oh, can I do this? I want to download Minecraft. I want to play on your computer. I, I was taught to redirect instead of being like, well, go figure out something to do. Go do this. Like, well, you know, just, mm -hmm. it, just reactionary. It comes from us to say and be the person that's, that will speak up and say, I can tell that you are bored. What can I do yeah. to help you that will that we can find something to help you not be bored. And it's just as simple them. as that. Like I can sense that you're mm -hmm. feeling something. Let me help you get there. And I thought that yeah. was the best right. advice I've ever gotten as a parent. No, it's, it's perfect because you're that frontal lobe. So when we're bored, what do we do? We use our own frontal lobe. Well, I could do this. I could do that. Maybe I could try this. Maybe I could try that. That's a, that's a, that's an executive, that's executive functioning. That's quite a complex part of the brain. Kids feel things first and then think things later. They're <laughs> they little do. walking like emotional, right? So they're like, oh, I'm bored. And it takes over their entire body and they come to you in a panic. And then they knock over everything in the process. Exactly. Sure. And you're literally laughing inside because you have the, a house that looks like Toys R yeah. Us with tons of things they could do. 
Um, but they just feel the boredom and it overwhelms them. And so our job as the frontal lobe is first of all, to get those oxytocin and serotonin, get those beautiful chemicals running. I know, right? Like bored, it feels so kind of itchy in your body. You don't know what to do. So, and then you're providing the role of the frontal lobe and giving them some ideas. I suggest to parents that they write five or th- six things if your kids can are old enough to read on the fridge. Mm-hmm. And when they're bored, go look on the fridge. You can pick from you know a few different items that you could do. The other thing is don't panic. It's okay if kids are bored. Yeah, exactly. It's good for them to be bored. They don't need to be entertained 24. Nobody ran around giving us stuff to do when we were kids. Never. We played in a cardboard box. We played in the backyard. Oh, we, God, yeah. we, we made fun out of all kinds of things, right? So the, I think too, Brittany, part of the problem with kids are so used to screens that they're losing their imagination. They're losing that ability to see things and you know imagine things in front of them and be on a spaceship or in the middle of a battle or whatever it is. And we're so quick to fix it for them that we are actually not helping them build that neurology, build those neural, those neural pathways that actually help them to figure out how to make themselves busy, how to do something when they're bored. Well, I think a lot of parents are modeling, modeling panic. What you're yeah. really modeling for them is panic because that's what you're feeling inside, yeah. right? Because you don't have the skills either. No one's taught these. There's no parenting courses. I mean, there are. But there's really no, like, like Jennifer says, no manual. And, you, and in order to learn this stuff, you actually have to experience it. You have to, you have to practice it, like we're talking about all the other mental health skills. You, you practice, but usually you're practicing in the moment, you're practicing in life. So Jennifer, how important is it, we'll talk to Heather about this, how important is it to match the emotion that your kids are having? Well, it's actually really critical, right? So if they come to you and they're bored... I'm bored. I got nothing to do. And that kind of grates on our nerves or whatever. And we say, you know what? You've got a million toys in this house. Just go find something to do. There's not a match there. And they're going to escalate to try to get you to take what they're feeling seriously, which then looks like escalated behavior, which then makes us get angry or start consequencing or whatever. So it's really just kind of, well, it's the calm technique. It's kind of the, one of our pillar strategies that we teach is to just use your body, use your, that affect matching to, to go, okay, look, what? you're so bored, you feel itchy and there's nothing to do. And it feels like all your toys you played with a million times, like you just kind of get in there with them. But it has to be about them, not you. Like you can't be, oh my God, you're bored. That's terrible. It's the worst feeling in the world. That that just becomes weird. Like that's now that's about you, not them. It's more of a, hey, I can see that you're bored. Boredom isn't a great feeling at all. Um, and I can tell exactly how you're feeling. And here's some things that we can do about it, right? You You have to maintain that beautiful neutrality. And your job isn't to rescue them all the time. That's exhausting. And that's what a lot of parents try to do. They try constantly all day long to control every single condition for their children. So their children get that it's through so that exhausting. day. Happy. And then the, the husband comes mm-hmm. home or the wife, and then you're letting all uh, letting it all out on them. You're just, yeah, you're, get them away from me. I can't anymore. I'm done. <laughs> can't do this anymore. Yeah. Exactly. But it's because you're trying to control all the conditions rather than teaching your children that they can handle all the conditions. Yeah. I don't think that parenting is as hard as the way we relate to our thoughts and feelings while Probably. we're parenting. I think yeah. parenting is a job, but it's all the crap that goes on in your head where you feel like you have to stop what's happening and you know, redirect yeah. what's happening because, I mean, if you have to be someplace, if you have to do something, but actually responding and connecting and that that is the intention. The intention is not to control. It's not to get them to do stuff. It's to connect with them. And it's, yeah. of course, it's easier said than done. I mean, I have a 16-year-old, but I'm four emotionally, <laughs> so that's not so great. So I have to deal with that. 
Heather, you you did you marry a professional athlete or is it my imagination? Yes, he went to college. He went to Louisiana Lafayette. He's a left-handed pitcher. He didn't continue on after that. Now he's a woodworker. He's this epic, beautiful woodworker, handmade furniture. It's it's incredible. Oh, beautiful. So cool. Yeah. I saw that you have some DIY. You have these shows and, and videos that you do where you work together. Yes. How is it working together with your husband? And and are you the, do you guys have the same parenting style? Do you work together in parenting the same way? We do. I, I would say he leads, leans to me more for like the advice and stuff like that with the kids. Um, not so much like disciplinary because I think we've really gone through the ringer with the kids, what we, what we both um, find important and not. But I, I think like we we're, pretty much on the same page most of the time. There's always like that 5% where we're not. With with woodworking, it's actually therapeutic for our family because our kids really enjoy it with us. So when we're doing oh, all these beautiful. projects in the house, like they love to get in there and paint and they love to get in there and like use the camera and like get involved. And I, I think it's really great for us. That's the best school in the world. Oh, yeah, right I, I want to come live with you. That's number one. <laughs> uh, secondly, I'm looking for a table. And I think I need to make <laughs> well, now it you know. your house. It's, now I know. It's at Hubble yeah. Woodshop. There, we, there he is. Hubble Woodshop. What a great oh, name, yeah. Hubble Woodshop. Hubble it's Woodshop. telescopic. I know, right? Now, I want to talk about the bystanders because this podcast, your role as a producer on this show, and I know you've also got a role on the show. How did this come to be? What are the challenges in making a podcast as opposed to you know doing a film or a TV show, the creative challenges and how did you develop this thing because it's it's a, it's a real interesting mixture of dark comedy murder mm -hmm. a, a murderous thing that happens and something that's based on a real event right right it's based on the the, the kitty genovese story where a woman was murdered i believe in new york city right it's in new york that's right that's right queens in yeah. queens in her apartment complex and there was mm -hmm. so many people who witnessed it and nobody came forward and did, did anything, anything for her and I, I've, I actually didn't walk, watch the documentary, but I hear there's like so much more that goes into it, uh, especially at that time. You know, she was a gay woman and it would have been scary for a person to call the police on a gay woman at the time. There's just a lot more that mm -hmm. goes into it. But my good friend, Ash Lenzian, who is the writer and director, and she also produced with me, she just told me about her idea and that she was writing a script. And I was just instantly fascinated by this idea. I was just hooked on what she was telling me. And it was just a pitch. You know, she just said, this is a story. Uh, we want to make it comedy and fun. And I'm writing with my partner, Jacqueline. And so like a year later, I had started listening to Homecoming, uh, the scripted podcast. And right. like 36 Questions was also something I just started listening. Just both incredibly uh, surround audio and in-depth podcasts. And I called her up. I'm like, hey, can we make this a podcast? I would love to try and explore this. And I think it took her a bit. And she was like, you know what? I think we can try it. And weirdly enough, right as we started pitching this thing, this was January, February of 2019. And so mm -hmm. right when we had talked to Bleed, which you guys are with as well, which is great, everything yeah. had shut down. So nothing was yeah. open. And we had just you know, connected with Believe and we were going to start this podcast. And it was almost perfect timing because nothing was open, no productions were going, but we could still continue to make this on our own. We could still send people um, mic kits 
And it was almost like a blessing in disguise that we were still able to do that. Now, granted, nobody wanted to hand us money for it because nobody had money to give. So we raised it ourselves. And that was also a blessing in disguise. We were just three women on a mission, doing it, getting it done. Every time we heard a no, we were like, okay, well, whatever, we can do this ourselves because it's it's such a controlled environment that we were able to get done with Mm -hmm. two editors. We have a sound engineer and like a Foley design. So he does all the sound effects. And now we have a composer, Tori Cummins, who does the music. And then the actors who are all just favors and friends that we just emailed and said, hey, you know, this is our budget and we'd love for you to do it. And everybody was just so on board and it was the most beautiful story. And it's, People believed in it. You know, we believed in the story and how funny it was. But once other people like Kristen sent me a video message and was like, I freaking love this character and I want to play her so bad. We were just so excited that people loved it. Incredible. Well, you've got you've got Jane Lynch, you've got Kristen Chenoweth, you got Michael Hitchcock, you got I know Oscar really well, Oscar Nunez and Michael from the Groundlings. This is a great cast. Tell me a little bit about, you know, walking that line of dark comedy, you know, murder, because this story is a historic story about human behavior, because it's when everybody else feels like the other person is responsible in the community that they don't have to do anything. You know, there are experiments that have been done um, at Yale and other places about this whole mentality that groups get into when you feel someone else is responsible you'll do almost anything so tell me about that like how you how you've crafted this thing that has has comedy in it right i mean like you said it's like even now this is something that new york is studying and they're trying to teach seminars about is this bystander effect and how Mm -hmm. We can take something that's actually really dark and really serious and make it funny. And that also was something that we didn't plan was that there was a lot of things simultaneously happening around our country and around the world that feels like the bystander effect um, where you're witnessing these people on trains and on airplanes getting accosted and then mm-hmm. people are holding up their phones. It's astounding to yeah, me. it's astounding. And I want yeah. for us to be an example of what not to do, almost making light of it, you know, like this is what not to do. Uh, You do find out later that they have a lot more to do with it than you think they do. But yeah, it's just astounding that that nobody feels like they can step up. And I, I now have taken it so personally that I just try to inspire as many people around me. Like I will not be the person to sit there anymore and just watch somebody. But like, how do you get there? You know, like, how do you get over your fear of death or being hurt or looking like an idiot? You know, like, where's that next step? Well, you know what I think is huge? What you're doing is you're modeling that. Like, you're showing people that's the right thing to do. That's that's the direction. That's who you want to be. And then that becomes the the goal, right, is to to be that. It's – we're very – humans are so messy – and so complicated, and they walk around with their own issues. But I love that. And that puts you into alignment with who you are. Because when you're in a situation like that, and you walk away and say nothing, that lives in you. Oh, forever. How anywhere. you react to anything, right. it, it stays with Absolutely. you. Right. It does. And you carry it around. And this is why people are so tired. What they're exhausted from is what they've never said. 
what they've never so spoken. True. Oh, I love that. That's what exhausts you. That pulls at you and, and you carry it. You carry it with you. You carry it in your body, right? You yeah. as a dancer, especially, you, you, will, you would know if you're carrying stuff. So this is a really good thing. And, and speaking up politically and changing, you know, the way people behave, speaking out when you hear something that's not, because people are doing outrageous things all the time. It's not enough to turn the TV off. You, you have to speak out as well. Yeah. But, it, but it's how you speak out too. Like if, if people think they're, they're standing up by, by you know, shouting and screaming and, and um, being really aggressive about their point of view, but all that does is drive conflict. That just drives you away from each other, right? Finding that center point in the middle where it, no matter what side people are on, it, it, people are the stars of their own movie. They, they believe they're the good guy in the story. Right. Right. That's the crazy part. So when you can find some commonality, when you can approach that person in a really neutral and I want to say loving, but like a, as a whole, right, you're going to have a conversation with someone instead of a confrontation. You with just someone. want to and understand. You, I just throughout all of this, the lesson that I took away was that, you know, people will go on their social media and they'll post how they believe, which is truly how they believe it to be. Mm -hmm. But can, mm -hmm. how can I get in there and have a conversation to where I actually understand yeah. your side? Maybe I'm not going to jump on board, but I want to hear yeah. your facts and where and how you feel about it. And that's the only way change happens, right? Otherwise, we're just driven, we're just polarized and we're yeah. driven farther and farther, farther away from each other. And when you can have a conversation instead of a confrontation, that's where change actually happens. There is empathetic listening. You know, there is a way mm -hmm. of listening to people that they feel heard. And that's really what, you know, the, the act of listening is a revolutionary act in this world, in today's world. It's a very unusual skill to have in today's world. Yeah. Everybody wants to talk. Nobody wants to listen. And when you're listening, you're not pretending to listen. It's not like, oh, it would be a good idea to listen now. You actually, you want to find out. You're listening. That's a big deal. I had a friend who was uh, a creative guy from Mystery Science Theater, that show. And they used to give him notes. And he would say, I don't know. It just doesn't feel right. I love that. And it's such a great response. It's so not confrontational. Yeah. Just doesn't feel right. I love that response. I never feel comfortable saying it when I'm on a set, though. Sometimes I feel like I can say to a director who, who gives me a note who I honestly just don't understand or agree with. I don't think that the character is in that direction. I'll say that once in a while. But if I don't, I almost feel like there's going to be this tension between me and the director if I say that out loud. You know, like... Mm -hmm. He doesn't right. like that I said no. <laughs> so he's going to make me look bad on camera, which hasn't happened. Yeah. I'm just saying like, what if that, what if? Yeah. That's, the That's fear. where I'm scared. Well, I, I had a friend, I, I had a friend, Shirley Knight was a great actress, she was Academy Award nominee, great. And she, what she used to do is she would always say yes to the director and then she would do it her way <laughs> every time. And then she would attribute the success of it to him. Smart. She would say, remember when you, t you told me you gave me that adjustment and I did it. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they, this is what they're after, you know, and, and, but she said, I'd never do it exactly the same way. Can't do it exactly no, the you same can't. way. I've never, I've never done it that I could never do that. That's not what a, being a performer is, but this is a really interesting show and the way you've, you've put it together and all those performers are fantastic. And uh, we're just so, we're so blessed. It's so good. I mean, and even down yeah. to like, we have Ed Westwick as our guest who kind of happened to fall into our lap through a friend. He's so funny in it. It's just the characters are so perfect. 
for their mm-hmm. role. It's just, it's incredible to listen. So don't miss it. The Bystanders podcast. Don't miss the Bystanders on the Believe Network, B-L-E-A-V.com. You can find it or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Very interesting and really funny, but really rooted in in something that's pretty important, this, this mm-hmm. whole bystander effect. So that's, yeah. a, that's a big thing. And I before I let you go, I cannot let you go without just asking you very briefly about Glee and about, I'm wondering if you have a favorite number or a favorite song that you've danced to or some, because some of the choreography, you know, the, the proud, the proud Mary uh, choreography or just every number is so interesting. Mm-hmm. What was it? Was it, is the, is the experience of doing it as much fun as it is to watch? Well, it's like any job, you know, you love it so much, but then you're doing it for 16 hours straight or a scene. Sure in the auditorium, it wouldn't last like two hours. It would be a full 12 hour day in auditorium. So you're almost like running low on steam by the very end. And you're still trying to love that song, but you're also like, I don't think I could hear it anymore again in my life. (laughs) Yeah. So don't stop believing. You want to stop believing. I I did start to love don't stop believing again. It okay. Yes. My brain and my heart connected and they love don't stop believing. (laughs) Good. Okay. Uh, the song that I actually I heard it on the radio two days ago, and you had just you gave me some of the questions, and one of that was one of them was that, and I was like, oh my god, TLC's Unpretty. We performed it. It was a mashup, wow. and it was touching on you know being a, a younger girl in high school and wanting to look a certain way in your body image. But I remember growing up to that song. I love that song. And when we did it on the show, I wanted so badly to be performing it. But I was just so ultimately happy that we did it. Uh, it was such a good song. Yeah, and I, I love doing Shout with Darren Chris. I love Darren Chris to death. He's the funnest person. He's an Aquarius. We're both the weirdest people together. And <laughs> I had a blast doing that song. I'm, it's such a fun song. It's the wedding song. It's the wedding song. Yeah. The wedding song, absolutely. Having meaning attached to those kind of things is is so great. But I get what you're talking about in terms of, you know, you're rehearsing, you're doing, and it's a it's a full, full, full time job. Mm-hmm. And that is your job. That's what you do for a living. And what's your response to somebody who feels like they can't dance? I say, you can dance, and I'm sure mm-hmm. whoever thinks that they can't hates that answer. But if I ever encounter someone who doesn't dance, I would say it's almost like like a comedy like technique class. Like if somebody doesn't dance, I really try and get in there and like connect with them eye to eye and just kind of like bounce back and forth, right? Because all somebody wants to do is be heard and be seen. So I'm like, let's just get in there together and let's just see each other. And then they start to vibe because when you make eye contact with somebody, you almost just let down mm-hmm. your whole guard. And so once mm-hmm. you get somebody vibing, it's like, I just try to mimic everything they do because then they feel more confident that I love what they're doing. And I'm not doing it in like a, oh, you're so bad. I'm going to do what you're doing. I'm doing it in let's get confident together and feel good about our bodies in the moment that we're having. Because people who say they can't dance, it's just because they're fearful, right? They're scared. And self-conscious. Yeah. They're scared, especially in a dance class where there's other amazing dancers or there's a mirror so you stick a person in front yeah. of a mirror and all they see is their imperfections themselves 
Oh my God. I love what you just said so much. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> connected parenting is literally, that's what you do, right? You're looking into your child's eyes. When you gaze into someone's eyes, oxytocin, which is a very powerful neurotransmitter slash hormone releases in the brain that blocks cortisol. And the same effects happen to you. So you're having this really beautiful connected moment. And that's such a beautiful me- metaphor for what I teach parents to do with their kids. Oh, that's that's so funny. beautiful. Thank you for yeah. that. That's incredible. I am one of those people. I mean, I really have a fear of dance. I'm, I'm really good. I'm a, I'm a singer, but dancing is the real uh, challenging thing for me. And I think if people have different body types, that's another thing. Uh, there was a dance studio that I went to for a performance once. And, you know, everybody was very different in their body type. There yeah. were teens. And it was just so great to see that. We're so used to seeing a certain type of body dancing. Here would be my advice to you is you don't have to get be- out of show business. No, no, <laughs> no. Okay. You don't have to okay. be the perfect dancer. Find other performers who are outrageously goofy and weird dancers, but it works for them. And so if you find those people mm. that inspire you as a dancer, then you'll feel more confident in your- your own skills, whatever they are, whatever kind of dancing it is. It doesn't have to be perfect. Nobody wants to watch a perfect dancer anyways. You want to see like their weird, quirky habits and skills. And it's, it's, it's across the board for all performance, you know, performances. Oh, like, like you just that. want to see, you don't want to see something different than the average or the good or right. the great. You just want to see like different. You want to see authentic yes. too, right? Somebody really from their heart, just to, just being in the moment. I love that. Find out who you are. And that's what I always tell comedians. You know, it's not important what you say. It's important who you are and how you are. So find out what that is and that feeling. Of course, it takes a long time to feel that you have to get up on stage a lot. But there are clues along the way. And that's every successful comedian I've ever seen. It's it's how they are on a stage and that they're being close to really the closest thing to who they are as people, even Mm -hmm. if you're doing a character still. And I really want to thank you. And I, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm excited for the Bystanders podcast. And I want to keep listening. I'm excited to hear that and, and keep listening to that. I want to direct you to connectedparenting.com, connectedparenting.com, where you can find all kinds of skills. Jennifer does amazing things with this organization and really practical skills that you can use in the moment, which is what I love most about, about working with, with her. And I just want to thank you all for Heather. A pleasure. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can I also say thank you for making a mental health comedy podcast? Because most of my comedic friends and um, stand-up friends, they all have they struggle with anxiety and mental health issues. And this is just really awesome that you do this. Thank you. Well, we're having fun, and they they all are welcome to come on the show. The comedy community really has to help each other. That's one community that really needs. And we've got some programs in the works for that. But you can find everything uh, at Make Light Media. It's Make Light, one word, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T, media.com. Or you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast and share the podcast if you're able to. That really helps us. Heather Morris, listen to the bystanders. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari and for Heather Morris. We will see you soon. Bye.